right. Well, we are excited uh, to continue this series, and um, we've already begun the last three weeks uh, looking at it from uh, the opening sermon on, uh, uh, on the very first week of January here in the church, and then Pastor Jonathan speaked about forgiveness, and last week Pastor Peter spoke on um, adoption. And so I'm going to be pretty much following right behind what Pastor Peter spoke about last week, and I think the two will tie in really well together. But at the beginning of this year, we said that we wanted to start this new series, Who I Am. And this is not so much uh, coming at it from the, the question side of this, the, uh, this discussion of, you know, who am I? Uh, rather, we decided to go the other way and say, let's, make a, let's proclaim who we are. And our goal is that by the end of this year, and like I said uh, the first Sunday, my hope is that earlier on already, you will be able to have this confidence to proclaim who you are. And we're going to look at multiple different things and themes over the year, but all of it hopefully wrapped around this discussion of discovering ourselves and then not just knowing it within ourselves, but proclaiming it for others to know as well. And so... In preparation for the sermon, I asked you, or for the series, I asked you, or I encouraged you, uh, to read the book of Ephesians. And hopefully, many of you have read that now letter over and over and over again, and just hearing the beautiful words from the Ephesians, because I don't know if there's another letter that as well describes and better helps us understand who we are in Christ. And so for this portion of this theme, um, the year theme, we're looking now really specifically at the at this through the lens of Christ and saying, in Christ, who am I? Because we're making an assumption, and that is this, that you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you're not here as a believer in Jesus Christ, please continue to come. Please continue to journey with us in this discovery. But we're really focusing this theme from that angle that you've given your life to Christ. And so therefore, we need to understand in Christ, in the one that you have placed your faith in, who are you? What has Jesus accomplished in your life that you cannot have accomplished on your own? And that is a fun topic to discuss. It is a, an important topic to discuss. It is a life-giving topic because there is so much that Jesus has done for us. So I want to just really quick put in a plug um, for the first three sermons of this series they are on YouTube and they're on our website and I would love for you to watch them because they, um, they are kind of a journey um, together, linked together. The other thing, if I can just shamelessly ask, you know, please hit like on the YouTube um, videos. It isn't that we preach for likes, but it is about getting noticed and, and we want people to hear these videos and to see these videos. And so that's one way that you can just help and you all know the YouTube algorithm. The more likes, the more views. And so therefore, it's a way that you can help us. Anyway, that's a shameless plug, but I think it, it accomplishes much more than just more likes and views. We want to have people hear what God is doing for them and what God has done for them. I want to start by maybe what sounds negative. But I hope this grabs your attention. I hope this causes you to focus and think for yourself now as we go through the rest of this sermon. And the statement is this, that I am astonished in my years of working with people, in my years of working with Christians, I am astonished at the number of Christians who live in defeat. Christians who are trapped in sin, 
Christians who have no joy, Christians who do not have the peace of Christ, Christians who live in defeat, some to the point of questioning whether or not they're even saved. Over the years, one of the things that I have often done with individuals that come into my office or when I speak with them in other places, and they talk about their life as a believer, and they talk about the defeat and how hard it is and how hopeless it is, I encourage them to examine their conversion experience. How genuine was it? We have to ask this question. It's not a fun question to ask, but we have to examine that. If I've given my life to Jesus and yet I haven't really, or I don't live as if I've experienced the victory and and all that Christ has done for me, then it is only fair, it is only right that we would go back to that moment when we gave our life to Christ and say, did I really understand what I did? Did I genuinely give my life fully surrendered to Jesus? This is not a fun question to start with, but it is an important one. I think it's only right that we think of this because after we have accepted Jesus into our hearts, it doesn't mean that our life will be easy and that everything will go well, but we should not be living in defeat. That is not the Christian journey that is described for us in Scripture. Being a Christian doesn't mean you will not have obstacles, does not mean that you will not have period and, and seasons of struggle and maybe even doubt. But being a Christian means that you will still remember and you will still have that anchor and that confidence that in Jesus you have peace, that you have joy, that you have love, that you have hope. And in regardless of the circumstances, you will find those surface in your life. They will come to the surface in some way or another. And if that is never happening, I want to encourage us to truly wrestle with the question of why. Why do so many Christians live in defeat? So let me ask you know, two more questions to focus. And then I want to show you from Scripture the victory that is yours. Are you a victorious believer here today? Are you a victorious believer here today? What victories in Christ have you recently experienced? We could just pause for a moment and say, hey, name the victories that you have recently experienced in Jesus. Not way back. Those are important, but Jesus doesn't stop giving you victories. It's a journey. You may not have as many in some years as you have in others, or in some season as you have in others. There will be struggles. But what victories have you experienced recently in Jesus? These are important questions, and I hope that if you're sitting here going, hmm, I couldn't name one, that you will be inspired to truly listen today and to consider how you might apply and how you might allow the truth of the Word of God that we're about to listen to, how you can allow these to prompt you to live out the victory that is already yours. Victory that you do not have to fight for, that you do not have to you know, do anything for. If you've given your life to Jesus, this victory is already yours. So if you have your Bibles and the YouVersion app and whatever you're using, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. 
We're going to spend most of our time in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. But we're going to read some verses ahead of that because we need to set the context and understand where this passage that Paul um, speaks about is coming from. So Romans chapter 8, just have that open. Get your pens out. Let's take some notes because I want you to hear what God wants to say to you today. So let's jump, though. Romans chapter 8, let's jump to verse 18. Okay, verse 18, because I want to read to us a, a passage of scriptures that are going to outline for us sort of the understanding we need to have before we look at verses 31 to 39, because if we don't understand some of what comes before that, we may not fully be able to grasp what Paul says in those following verses. So verses 18, chapter 8, verse 18. I consider, Paul says, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us or in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God." We know that the whole of creation, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we also, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what? They have already for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And we who search, and He who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's pause there for a moment. That, that could be the sermon right there, and we would have heard enough. But what these verses do, what Paul does, is he accomplishes so well for us, and describes so well for us the hope that is in place. That which we already have. The hope that Paul calls our eager expectation. This is what we are longing for. This waiting for hope to come to liberate us from decay and bring us to the fullness of God. These verses also point that we are not in this on our own. We have the counsel of the Holy Spirit who groans and intercedes for us. So in those moments when we are in a, in a place where we may feel defeated, we are not defeated because the Holy Spirit actually speaks to God on our behalf. Intercedes for us. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. That's victory, folks. 
we are told that it is the will and the purpose of God to work all things for good for God's people. This goes along with what Jesus said in the parable. He's like, if you as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, imagine how much more God knows how to give good gifts to your children. So God, Paul says here, God will work all things for good. And again, we're not naive. We know life will be hard, but heaven will make all things good. It is not death and then loss. It is death and then victory, complete whole victory. God is able to work these things out because we are foreknown, we are predestined, we are called, we are justified, we are glorified. These are all that God has done for us. How is it that we live in defeat? This is an outline of what God has done for us. Not what we've done, not what we've accomplished. This is victory that is available to every single believer today, right now, right in your seat. You, right now, have this done for you. This is lasting victory. This is not the kind of victory that you have for a season or for a week or for a month. If you think of sports, you know, every team competes. And at the end of the year, one team is the victor. One team has victory. What happens at the beginning of next season? It doesn't matter who the champ was the year before. You all start with zero points. The victory that Jesus gives is a lasting victory. It doesn't go away tomorrow. It doesn't go away next week. It doesn't go away the day that you commit a sin or the day that you have some questions or doubt. Jesus' victory is lasting. Nothing can take it away. So what happens in our lives sometimes is that we think that this victory is dependent on us. And so we might lose in a sense we might do something we shouldn't have done and now suddenly we just assume that we have lost and that even our relationship with Jesus is in despair or is lost but the victory that Jesus gives is a lasting victory Jesus is the only one who can give this lasting victory why because Jesus has permanent victory over death and sin we're com- we're familiar with death We understand death. We know it will come for all of us one day. And we acknowledge it and we accept it. That death is coming. But Jesus looked death in the face and said, No, I will rise again. And He is the one who has died, who is now seated at the right hand of God. And His victory therefore is permanent, even over things like death and sin. Jesus defeated death. Therefore again, He has the right and the power to give life victory. So as we look in a little bit at the next verses, I want to challenge us to acknowledge that we tend to worry about those things that are unknown, those things that we don't quite get, get, the things that we can't quite grasp, those things that are often confusing to us and recognize that even those things that in Scripture, out of Scripture, that we don't understand, that Jesus' victory is even over those unknowns in our lives. And although this may something that we, be something that we struggle with at times to understand and, and have full confidence in because we don't like the unknown, most of us anyway, we don't like the unknown and it can cause us to worry and it can cause us to, to even panic, it can cause us to, to question all kinds of things, but we accept and acknowledge today that Jesus' victory is over the unknown. 
It is over every area of your life. There is nothing you can name that the victory of Jesus does not touch and give life to. This victory is most evident in regard to spirituality. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is clear. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you're struggling in your life in any way spiritually, know that God has given you victory over those things in Jesus Christ. Jesus came so that we might have spiritual victory. Spiritual victory is at the heart of what God, uh, what Paul is describing here. He makes a list of things that we could worry about. Things that can cause us to fear. Things that can impact or hinder our lives. But however, the real focus of these passages and these verses is not earthly victory. Is not accomplishing things here on earth. But our spiritual victory can be known and secured and is secured in the victory that Jesus had himself and in the victory that he gives. Our security is also in his love. So Paul has given us these verses and he set the stage for what we are about to read. So let me read to you now from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to verse 39. These are well-known verses and I pray they give you Hope and confidence today. What then? After all that, what then shall we say in response to these things? So he's asked one question, and now he's going to ask a few more. And I want you to listen carefully to these questions. We're going to touch on most of them in a little bit. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face death all day long for we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the church said, Amen. So let's look at these questions that Paul raises. And let's understand the depth of the answer to these questions. Number one, first question that we want to look at, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, how Paul raises this question is worth considering. Had Paul simply asked, who is against us? We would come up with a long list of answers and all these things, and we could just completely discourage one another by talking about all the things that are against Christians, all the things that are out to get us. 
But Paul doesn't ask this naive question. He doesn't start by looking at what's against us, folks. We know that today millions of Christians are experiencing persecution that we could not even imagine. But Paul doesn't, like I said, start with this naive question. The essence of his question is contained in the if clause of the question. If God is for us, who can be against us? We might even ask it this way. Since God is for us, who can defeat us? This was written to the church. This was written to Jesus' followers. And Paul is making it very clear. If God is for us, since God is for you, church, who's against you? And you can name all kinds of things. Oh, but wait a minute. If God is for you, who's really against you? And suddenly your eyes begin to realize that, oh, the one who's on side, our side, is far greater than the one who is against us. And eventually, you are no longer focused on those who are against you, but you are focused on the one who is for you. Victory. In the Old Testament, sadly, there were actually times where God said to his own people, I am against you. But this is not the case in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, for God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified His church. Therefore, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Nothing. All the powers of hell may set themselves against you, but they will not prevail because God is for you. Number two, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer, he says, it is God who justifies. But who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? This is similar to the earlier question, but different. And what Paul is doing here, in a way, is invoking a courtroom view, a scene. You picture yourself, the prosecutor. Is the prosecutor going to condemn you in any way? Why? He can't, because God is the judge, and he will not condemn you. He has already justified you. So the question really is important for us to understand because no one can condemn us because God has already justified us. Jesus, our advocate, has died for our sins, was raised from the dead, is seated at God's right hand, and is interceding on our behalf. So who will accuse us? Satan may attempt to, but I want you to hear this. When Satan makes an accusation against you and I, into the presence of God, it holds absolutely no sway over God because he is aware of what Jesus has done for you. So Satan may hurl all kinds of assaults and all kinds of, you know, condemnation against you before God, and God says, I know what my son has done for that person. They are justified. Your accusations have no power. So then we have to ask the question, if God will not listen to the insults and to the accusations of Satan, who does? Who does? Sadly, to our own detriment, we do. We listen to those accusations. We listen to those insults. We listen to what Satan lies to us about and says, this is who you are and, and you're not good enough and, and you'll never get free of this. 
and we begin to believe it and we begin to listen and believe to the point sometimes of even doubting whether God truly has saved us. I want you to be really aware the next time you hear lies in your ear or in your heart and know that that is not coming from our Heavenly Father. That is coming from our enemy. Third question. Who then is the one who condemns? Is Jesus who died more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Why would Jesus do that and then condemn us? Paul says, who is the one who condemns? No one. To me, this is reminiscent of the story in John chapter 8 where the woman is caught in adultery and, and the leaders bring her before Jesus and they're like, the law of Moses condemns her to death. And they want to trap her and they say, Jesus, what do you say should be done? Do you condemn this woman? We've already told you the law of Moses condemns her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus does his thing. He, he starts writing in the sand and I won't read you the story, but you know the story. And ultimately what he ends up doing is he raises up and he says, has no one condemned you? Think of the power of that question. Has no one condemned you? And her answer is, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and live your life of sin. So you need to realize today that you and I are like that woman. Jesus sees the things. He's not blind to the sin that we commit. He's not blind to those things, but he does not condemn us if we have given our lives to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we are free from condemnation. Our sins are not hidden from Christ. He's aware of our sin because He bore those sins on the cross. He is aware of every single sin you have ever committed. He is aware of the struggles because He Himself carried the weight of your sin on the cross. However, because of what Jesus did, we are no longer condemned because those sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. We have victory in Jesus. So therefore, Christ followers, Jesus followers, stop listening to the condemnation of the devil. It's his job to lie to you. It's his job to deceive you. It is his job to discourage you. That's the job of the enemy. Do not give him a foothold. Do not listen to the lies. Because he will do anything and everything he can to make you question the victory that you have in Christ. And final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I don't know if I can count how many times I've had Christians assume because of what they've done that God no longer loves them. This is again a lie that Satan tells us. So I want you to visualize this in a sense what God, Paul is doing. He is walking us up this grand stairwell. 
And at the very top of the stairwell is this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Even if all those other things that we have just looked at, if they were all true, there's no one that condemns, there's no one that can, you know, um, do these things against us and make accusations. But if at the very top of it, even if all those things are true, we can be separated from God's love, then all those other things would be undermined. So this is an important question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? It appears that Paul then begins to raise questions of could this or this, because he knows that's what we're going to do. If you've had little kids, you know that your kids at some point will ask you this question. If I would do this, would that, not, would that make you not love me, Daddy? Like, or Mom, would that, would that be, you know, if I called you a dum-dum, would that make you not love me, Dad? You know, and if little kids will do that sometimes because they want to understand. What is it that would make you stop loving me, Dad or Mom? So Paul does the same thing. He outlines all these things that could possibly separate us. He mentions seven possibilities. He begins with trouble and hardship and persecution. This could be seen as those outward pressures of life from culture or wherever, from the ungodly world. Then he goes to famine and nakedness. Could these things, the lack of food and clothing, could they separate us from the love of God? After all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us not to worry about what we would wear or eat. Well, what if those things were now separated or removed from us? Has God now suddenly stopped loving us because we don't have those things? Paul wraps up the list with danger and sword, meaning perhaps the risk of death on the one hand and the experience of death on the other hand. And Paul here quotes verse 36, Psalm 44, verse 22. And, and that psalm is written about a group of Israelites who were experiencing difficulties, not because they were disloyal to God, but because they were loyal to God. We could name many other things on this list. We realize that in this world there is real suffering. It is unpleasant. It is demeaning. It is painful, hard to bear, and challenging at times to our faith. But Paul knew himself what he was talking about. He knew what suffering was like. And for you and I today who have maybe never experienced physical suffering, we may want to read these verses alongside with Hebrews chapter 11, 35 to 39. Look at what it says here. It says, women were raised from the dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better, under, better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheep's clothes and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Could this kind of life separate you from the love of God? Is there a point where you're suffering so much in life that God says, I can't love you? This is physical suffering to which we do not even understand. 
The church during this time that Paul is writing is at the brink, if you know history, is at the beginning of what is called the great suffering. When this sadistic leader, Nero, would literally light Christians on fire and hang them as torches for his palace. Could that separate a person from the love of God? Being a Christian at that time meant almost certain death. Definitely hardship. So when we suffer, is it a sign that we've done something wrong and now God is no longer able to love us? What could separate us from the love of God? That's the question Paul is still working with here. Paul knows what suffering is. He knows it's pain. He knows it's misery. And he knows how hard it can be. But do these things separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. No. On the contrary, instead of separating us from God, we are told in all these things, these seven possibilities that could separate us from the love of God. The list could be much longer. It could be hundreds. But Paul says, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, Jesus Christ. The mention of Jesus' love here is significant. Why? Because Jesus gave us victory by suffering. And therefore, when we suffer, Church, we are never separated from God's love. Nothing can separate you and I from his love. And then Paul, verse 38, the big climax, and we'll wrap up with this. For I am convinced, I read it already, so you know it. I'd love for you to yell these with me, but it would just be chaos. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, or demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in, that love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, we are victorious in Jesus. Insecurity is written across the human experience. You will struggle at times to believe this. That's insecurity. We all have it. Christian people are not promised immunity from temptation, tribulation, tragedy. But we are promised victory. God pledges. God's pledge is not that suffering will not afflict us, but rather that it will never separate us from him. Why? Because in Christ, we are victorious. I could preach on this all day. Church, believe this. Hold to this. Do not let lies ever cause you to question any of it. In Jesus, you have victory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Oh, we thank you, Jesus, 
We can read these verses, and they're not like a feel-good story, and, and we're like, oh, that feels good, but reality is maybe different. We know that this is truth. So we embrace your truth today, Jesus. I pray against the powers of Satan that would want any person in this room or online to question this. I pray that every single person here would be released of the lies, of the deception, and of the influence of the enemy who would cause us or want to cause us to question the truth of our victory in Jesus. Jesus, give us victory even over this, that we may live out fully today, tomorrow, this week, next week, this year, next year, and on and on, the victory that is secured in you, Jesus. Thank you for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.